You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A trial watched by millions around the world ending in a stunning verdict in favor of Johnny Depp. Last week, a jury found that Depp's ex-wife, Amber Heard, had defamed him in a 2018 Washington Post op-ed. She's been ordered to pay more than $10 million in damages. Heard, who plans to appeal, won just one of three claims in her counter-lawsuit against Depp and was awarded $2 million in damages. We are grateful, so grateful. Depp's supporters cheering the verdict and Depp's lawyers, Camille Vasquez and Benjamin Chu, who became public figures in their own own right during the trial. Legions of viewers on YouTube and social media hanging on every word and gesture. Ms. Hurd has told you that she has mountains of evidence of abuse, but there are no medical records. Ms. Hurd lies. She lies all the time. Hurd's team has alleged a coordinated social media campaign by Depp's side, turning public opinion and ultimately the jury against her. They went home every night. They have families. The families are on social media. We had a 10-day break in the middle because of the judicial conference. There's no way they couldn't have been influenced by it. A charge that Depp's team denies, saying the outpouring of support for the actor is nothing but authentic. Depp thanked those supporters yesterday in his first post on a newly created TikTok account, writing, we did the right thing together, all because you cared. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell, and part two of my fascinating conversation with Lucia Osborne Crowley. Let's jump back into the second part of this interview. But before we do, I just want to give you a trigger warning. This case and what happened at trial has sparked a lot of heated debate and emotion. It's also been very triggering for victims and survivors, not just what happened, but the reaction on social media and comments that people are posting. Remember, Others, your family, friends, work colleagues and victims and survivors are watching what you post. Also, listener discretion is advised for the episode. With that having been said, let's rejoin the conversation. I start talking about all the Johnny Depp fans turning up at court. Well, you just heard them on the clip at the top of the episode. So let's dive back in where we left off. But I think it's just how... He can be forgiven. He can turn up at court, blow kisses, wave at fans. And it's kind of treated like, a, I don't know, a premiere. He's going on a red carpet event. And it felt disgusting to me, actually. I mean, I found that really difficult because that's all emboldening and empowering for him. And for Amber Heard, there was just this very clear wave of dislike, distrust, And hatred, I I shouldn't even say dislike, it's just pure hatred of what she cannot ever be forgiven for, of speaking up. Um, You know, when the 2020 verdict came back in 
the sun's favour? Because actually that case, for those who don't know the 2020 case, it was it was actually brought in 2018, but it was Johnny Depp and the sun. It was about the sun calling him a wife beater. So it wasn't directly Amber Heard, but it was all regarding whether there was domestic abuse and whether Johnny Depp had perpetrated it. And the judge determined 12 occasions where he had. So... That's what all the headlines were thereafter. And then the op-ed piece came in December 2018. So there's there's a time differential there. Um, But I think even if people think, and lots of people throughout the trial seem to agree that there was mutual abuse, so that they both perpetrated abuse upon each other. And throughout, my feeling is always, I would listen to testimonies. I will look at the evidence, but I have to take the context of London because that's relevant. I watched that trial and, you know, not, we didn't have cameras in court, but in terms of headlines and what people were writing about it and the judgment, the ruling, the 129 pages, and and that's relevant context. Well, firstly, that wasn't believed to be relevant context for Joe Public. So when I was posting things about that on social media, people saying it's got nothing to do with what's going on in Virginia which it did have everything to do with what was going on in Virginia, just because the jury weren't allowed to know what that ruling was. That doesn't mean to say it's not relevant for someone like me who's joining the dots, right? And we all have to do that. We have to think about what evidence did that court hear versus what evidence did the court in Virginia hear? And they some things were quite different. But you had a makeup artist who was talking about abuse in 2015, Melanie Inglesis, and she did Amber Heard's makeup for the James Corden show in 2015. And she did give testimony that Amber Heard had facial injuries and she also had clumps of hair missing. Yeah, exactly. That's quite important testimony in in both courts. Conversely, in Virginia, you had you had a stylist who was there at the same event who Amber Heard had apparently said after the show, well, I did that show with two black eyes. And the stylist said that she didn't see evidence of any facial injuries. So you've got one saying that there was evidence who put the makeup on and the other after the show, the stylist saying she didn't see any evidence of facial injuries. So you can make something look whatever you want it to, right? In terms of you can take the stylist view and you can say her testimony is more important than the makeup artist. But the fact the makeup artist put it on over the facial injuries and the stylist was talking to Amber Heard after the show, which I would believe that therefore Amber Heard had the makeup on. But the point I'm making is that over time you could lift somebody's account or testimony and you could situate it and you could put them on the stand and it could sound quite believable if you didn't know that the makeup artist had actually said that there were injuries. And I felt that really that's what was going on a lot of the time in Virginia, that inconsistencies were being shown up incredibly well, which led people to believe that Amber Heard was not consistent. And there were times where she didn't help herself. And and I will say that because I listened to her and I watched her And I think for me, one of the key moments was about the pledge and donation issue that Camille Vasquez would not let her off the hook on. Sitting here today, you have not donated the $7 million donated, not pledged, donated the $7 million divorce settlement to charity. I use pledge and donation synonymous with one another. But I don't. Ms. Heard, 
I don't use it synonymously. That's how donations are paid. Ms. Hurd, respectfully, that's not my question. As of today, you have not paid $3.5 million of your own money to the ACLU. Yes or no? I have not yet. And as of today, you have not paid $3.5 million of your own money to the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, correct? I have not yet. Johnny sued me. So as of today, you have not donated, paid $7 million of your divorce settlement to charity, right? I have not been able to fulfill those, uh, those uh, obligations yet. <laughs> and that's because you did want something, didn't you? I didn't want anything and I didn't get anything. You wanted Mr. Depp's money. Didn't get it, wasn't interested in it. I loved Johnny, that's why I was with him. You wanted praise for donating the money, right? That's incorrect. You wanted good press. In general, one <laughs> does want good press, yes. You wanted to seem altruistic publicly. Wasn't my interest. Um, my interest is uh, in my name and clearing my name and at the time, I was being called a liar and my motives were being questioned. I did see it as important to clear that up. I wanted to make a statement to make sure that there was not any doubt that I couldn't be labeled these things just because Johnny was a bigger star and had more publicity reach. You wanted to remind everyone of your claims of domestic violence against Mr. Depp, right? No, I wanted to move on with my life. You wanted to make those claims seem believable. They are believable. They you were You wanted believable. them to be seen, you wanted to be seen, excuse me, as a noble victim of domestic violence. I have you? never, never wanted to be seen as a victim. Nor have you, I ever called myself one. You testified under oath that, quote, the entirety of your divorce settlement was donated to charity, end quote, didn't you? That's correct. I pledged the entirety. No. Ms. Heard, my questions. Your counsel will have time to redirect you after. You testified under oath, quote, the entirety of your divorce settlement was donated to charity, end quote. That is correct. I pledged the entirety. I'm going to move to strike everything after yes. Uh, all right. No. Ms. Hurt, this is really inappropriate. I'll sustain the objection and we'll just move forward. Thank you. Let's move forward. Next Thank question. You. Under oath, that statement wasn't true, was it, Ms. Hurd? I'm sorry, I don't follow your question. Sorry. You testified under oath, quote, the entirety of my divorce settlement was donated to charity, end quote. That statement wasn't true. It is true. I pledged the entirety to charity. The statement... When you say you buy a house, you don't pay Ms. for the Heard, entire house Ms. Heard, at one respectfully, time. You pay it I'm over not asking. time. Ms. Hurd. All right, next question, please. Thank you. That statement isn't true today, as you sit here today, is it? It is true. I pledged the entirety But you didn't charity. donate it. Unfortunately... You didn't donate it. It's a yes or no. I haven't been able to obligate, I mean, to fulfill those So that's a no, right, Ms. Hurd? I, am, I made the pledge. I want to be very clear. I pledged the entirety. I haven't been able to fulfill those pledges because I've been sued. Part of me felt, just be honest about it. Actually, if you're honest about it, it's really important that A, people see you being honest, but B, it's not really everything that this trial is going to hang on. 
But because she said that she uses donation and pledge in the same way, and she had previously said that she had donated that money, and now she was saying that actually she had pledged it, people, I think, took issue with that. And I think that was one of the critical moments. It was for me in the trial. And I think that changed a lot of people's minds, maybe. What did you think about that? Absolutely. I agree. And I think it might, I mean, I don't know, having not been behind the scenes, but it might also come down to what we were saying about their teams, because I do think that she perhaps could have been given better instructions as a witness or, or, you know, who knows, maybe she was given all the right training and instructions and kind of didn't go along with it. But I, you know, there were moments like that where, you know, I agree she could have dealt with them much better and come across as as less defensive and and things like that. And then also, I think, I don't know what you think about this, but I think there were times when her team didn't take opportunities to rehabilitate her. So I think, you know, redirects weren't used as much as they could have been. I mean, sometimes they were, but I think there were kind of broader narratives that could have been brought out by her team on redirect that often weren't. So those things were kind of allowed to stand in a way that, you know, I think could have been corrected. I mean, the pledge and donation thing, I agree. Certainly that was a huge moment and it's what a lot of people cite to me as being really important and a problem for her in terms of how people saw her credibility. Um, But again, it's tricky, right? Because another thing that could have been kind of emphasised more is that she's done lots of bad things in her life, you know, and this might be one of them. You know, it could be that she said she was going to do this and she didn't. That is separate to whether or not she's a victim of abuse. And, you know, obviously juries are instructed to take a witness's credibility as a whole and that's important. But I feel like that point also could have been made, you know, perhaps in closing uh, by her team that, you know, it's possible that she's done some things that you don't agree with. That doesn't mean that she didn't end up in an abusive relationship. I'm glad you said that because what I saw was shame in the way that she was behaving. And shame is something that we can all feel when we do something bad and we know it doesn't look good. And then she's trying to, you know, she doesn't want to admit because she thinks that now she's being confronted on it. And that, again, is just for me how Johnny's, Johnny Depp's team did a very good job at highlighting key inconsistencies that would really hurt her credibility. And this case was absolutely about credibility and likability. Whether we like that or not, and I don't like the the fact that likability weighs in, it does in these sorts of trials where Johnny Depp is sort of joking and laughing and trying to uh, get rapport with the jury. And you've got a very different kind of Amber Heard depiction where she's seen as distrustful and the jury may not have felt empathy towards her. And she, at, at times she was inappropriately engaging things. But again, that can come down to pressure. It can come down to trauma. I would expect to see things of an odd effect at times because that's what trauma can manifest as. And I think, again, they're the things that you would expect to see that should have been talked about That where we expect the victim to be a perfect victim. We expect them to you know, tell their story in a linear way, no inconsistencies, but much more for women than for men. And I think if most people watch that trial and they think about how they reacted to Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard, and we also know that many of us like Johnny Depp. I mean, I did as an actor when I was younger, you know, big fan. And so there's a whole cohort of people who've been big fans of his before we even get into the detail of the case. 
you know, even lots of domestic violence victims who have said to me, oh, you know, I've always been a big fan of Johnny's. Um, I still am. And I believe she lied. And some of the, you know, conversations I've been having with them is, if you were to go through the background of any victim, even if they seem to be the most credible, you can find inconsistencies, you can find skeletons in their closet. And if you were to highlight those things, how would they then look in, in a court of law? Because none of us are the perfect, you know, victims or people. And so if you have a team who are put together to go through all of those things, then that person is going to be painted in a very different light, even if they were, and there is no such thing as a perfect victim. And it's at that point, numerous people who I spoke with said, oh, yes, when they're thinking back in terms of themselves, that could happen to them too. And most victims get it. Most people who've been through uh, something traumatic or horrific, and then some who've gone through the criminal justice system know it's a hostile environment. Those who've gone through the civil justice system, the family justice system, it's a hostile environment for women. We, we have to think about that. That's before the case even begins. Exactly. And I think that this, again, is such a big issue that we need to think about. And I hope that this case really sparks some kind of soul searching on this because, you know, perhaps it's even a new jury instruction or a limiting instruction or something because it is obviously so important that the credibility of witnesses is considered by juries. But given that as a society there's this really ingrained idea of, you know, the perfect victim and if she lies about one thing then she must be lying about violence, I feel that we should think about how we can correct for that in a jury situation. So by all means, allow that evidence to be presented about, you know, various other things that have happened because credibility is important. But perhaps juries should be instructed something along the lines of, you know, you can weigh these other unconnected things that this person has done, but you cannot equate that with lying about this specific crime or this specific statement that's allegedly defamatory. Because that's the thing that I think a lot of us do because of the society we live in. And because of how stigmatized victims are, we say, oh, well, they just connect one lie to a lie about this entire story. And, and we don't do that with other witnesses. We certainly didn't do that with Johnny Depp. You know, we didn't say he lied about this one thing, therefore he's lying about everything. Yeah. Again, this speaks to the difference between juries and, and bench trials because Mr. Justice Nichols said there were inconsistencies in this story. Overall, I don't think it undermined her credibility as a witness, and here's why. Because these things are separate, because of how traumatic memory works. But juries don't have that background, and, and yes. juries respond to credibility very very differently. And, and I think that's something we really, we really need to think about, especially when we have someone like Johnny Depp, who, you know, we had his own, some of his own witnesses saying he was the biggest star in the world in the 2000s. You know, people are really attached to this person. And none of us are perfectly able to separate that from assessments of credibility. And that's why I think, you know, having a jury on this really complicated things and why we had such a different outcome with a bench trial than we did with a jury trial. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly. 
allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Yeah, I mean, you can take any case. I always think about Nicole Brown Simpson, you know, where you had a case where O.J. Simpson went on trial and Johnny Cochran fully well knew domestic violence and dynamics and so on, but he decided to call an expert and that expert was there to talk about battered woman syndrome, i.e. battered women who kill. But she went off and interviewed O.J. Simpson. She'd never done that before. And she gave testimony that he didn't follow the pattern of an abuser who would kill. Mm. But she was there to testify on battered women who kill. And here we had a battered woman who had been killed. And it was never challenged. But if you throw enough spaghetti at the wall, people, the jury can be left confused as to what they're really making a, a decision and a verdict about. And I remember talking to a lawyer who was in the L.A. Uh, courthouse just as the jury were coming out, and apparently two jurors turned to each other and said, it was really odd all that domestic violence stuff. I mean, that had nothing to do with that case. It was very confusing, wasn't it? And so two jurors left thinking the case was nothing to do with domestic violence because Johnny Cochran had also introduced the Colombian necktie and the drug deal gone wrong. So, you know, we have to think that if you're, it depends what you're looking for. And if you do throw enough spaghetti at the wall, which is normally a, a pretty common strategy, and if you reverse the victim and offender role, then you can be left with a very confusing state of affairs. And I think a lot of people are confused by this trial as to what really has transpired. And, you know, for me, I don't think there are any winners here. I think that it's a very sad state of affairs where we've had both their lives dragged through a camera lens. Because let's talk about cameras. I mean, the, the very fact that there were cameras in court, which I believe Johnny Depp's team specifically asked for and Amber Heard's team, legal team, were trying to get the cameras removed. What do you think the impact of, of that was and, and why they wanted the cameras? Well, to take the second part of your question first, I think whatever they thought was going to be the benefit of having the cameras, they were absolutely right about because it was about maximising his social power. And it worked. You know, the fact that people were watching him on the stand, um, people felt like they knew him from, you know, watching hours and hours of his testimony. He was so charming. He was laughing with his lawyers. He was making little jokes. And his team would have known when they argued for those cameras that he was going to be really good at all of those things that that would really win over the public. And, you know, I think in this kind of case, I mean, it's hard because I'm, I'm a huge advocate for open justice. But I do think in a case with someone as high profile as Johnny Depp, the question of, of cameras should have been weighed much more carefully. I think in some cases, it's really great to have complete access to the justice system for anyone who wants it. But there are different things coming into play here. And one of those is, is that you know, he has so much more social power than her. And that fed into all of the social media, everyone mocking her. And there's a few things here, right? So the cameras meant that all of these influencers on Instagram and TikTok were watching and making these horrible videos of her. And some people might say, well, 
that's not directly relevant because the jury is not supposed to look at social media, which in a certain sense is true. However, you know, this jury wasn't sequestered, which I also think is a questionable decision, and they could have easily checked social media if they wanted to. We know that happens. But also, there were people who showed up in Virginia to act out those TikToks when Amber Heard walked into the room, and the jury could see that. So even though people weren't necessarily supposed to be looking at social media, it was such a frenzy that people decided to show up live and act out what was happening on the internet. So, you know, these two things can kind of blend into each other. And I think that wouldn't have happened if there weren't cameras. So there's a part of me that that doesn't want to say this, as I said, because I, I do really believe in the idea that courts should be very accessible. But in this case, it went very wrong. And I think that could have been foreseen. And I, you know, I, I don't think having cameras in that courtroom benefited anybody except maybe Johnny Depp. Yeah, the 19 billion justice for Johnny hashtags. And, and I did notice whenever I posted anything, and, and oftentimes at the start, I was just posting contextual things about history. and But the pile on was really full on of as if I had made up my mind. And I kept saying, I'm watching the trial. But of course, I already knew about London. I can't unknow what happened in that verdict. Of course, you know, that's important to me when I'm understanding a case. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't look at the whole context of what was going on. But to lots of people, that wasn't relevant. And the pile-on and the vitriol and the this kind of um, rabid anger that was coming on social media, whether it was Instagram or Twitter or TikTok, it was really just bizarre. And then I started doing some research and found out that there were lots of bots and they were all pro-Johnny bots and then started to do further research and saw that if you were using favourable hashtags to Johnny, then you were incentivized even more. So the, algori- the algorithms were more favourable and less favourable to Amber Heard and, of course, incentivized in some respects for money too. So... I think that's something that we have to really consider about bots and what role they play and then how that impacts on, you know, someone who's just trying to figure out what's going on with a case or a trial and how that impacts on how they interpret it and what they say to somebody else and then what they start posting. But it seemed to be that there was a real sort of movement around the pro-Johnny stuff and if you were posting about Amber, you were getting absolutely slammed. And, and it seems to have calmed down now, which again tells me that it's probably much more about bots and the algorithm than anything else. Yes. And I think that is really worth investigating because this was a huge part of her counterclaim and it didn't get much airtime in the trial. I mean, again, this is about they both had time limits. I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of judicial and or administrative decisions that I hope get reviewed in this case, just because I think they made a huge difference. And the time limits was one of them. So huge part of her counterclaim was that he has a a paid up bot campaign to kind of get the public on his side on social media. And I would have loved to be able to get to the bottom of that. And I hope investigative journalists still do. Because I think, as I said about the people acting out the, the TikTok videos, I think we need to let go of this idea that what happens on the internet doesn't spill over into the justice system because that is happening. And I I do think that happened in this case. And so I think we do need to know just how many of these accounts were paid for by Johnny Depp's team. You know, the amount of abuse I've gotten, you know, I, I posted quotes from her lawyer's closing argument, from Ben Rottenborn's closing argument, and I got 
people abusing me, swearing at me. And I said, hey, guys, this is a direct quote. You know, these are not my words. This is me reporting something that happened in court. And I still got abused back. And I said to people, I was like, I'm quoting someone who is on her defense team, who is paid to defend her. So she has that right. Everybody has that right. And that is what just one of the things that told me that people have been really radicalized by this. The fact that people don't even think that she has the right to a closing argument. Yes. I mean, that is, we are really far down the rabbit hole if that's the argument that people are making about this individual. And I do think it has something to do with what happened on social media. And I think we really need to know how much of that was paid for by him or how much of it was coordinated. Exactly. And I feel that there was most likely quite a lot. When you look at articles that The New Yorker put out saying the Daily Wire spent tens of thousands of dollars to promote anti-herd content on Facebook and Instagram, and algorithms on, on YouTube were much more favourable um, on the anti-herd videos. So that's come from somewhere, the bots. And therefore, when we look at Adam Waldman again, and just that he had a clear strategy. We know the jury found in favour of Amber Heard, but if that's what he was prepared to do, i.e. make up something completely, well, it was with actual malice they determined, make up something completely untruthful, and he knew it to be false, because actual malice, let's just explain the meaning of that. It doesn't mean malicious. To meet the burden of actual malice, it's defined as a statement that was made or published that was one, with knowledge that the statement was false, or two, so recklessly as to amount to a willful disregard for the truth, that is, with a high degree of awareness that the statement was probably false. Actual malice is a subjective analysis that looks at the state of mind of the person who made the statement. If the person who made the statement believed it was substantially accurate at the time of the publication, then it does not give rise to liability for defamation. And again, you know, I think perhaps even this claim and counterclaim shouldn't have been tried together, you know, because these allegations in the counterclaim about what Adam Waldman potentially did here, they're very serious, you know, and they didn't get very much airtime at all because by the time we were hearing about the counterclaim, everything was being taken up by the kind of more central questions to the claim, which was about her statements about domestic abuse. And so I feel that we really didn't get to the bottom of that. And, you know, for example, he wasn't a live witness. He had a video deposition. He wasn't asked, and maybe the judge excluded this, but he got in trouble in 2016 for being involved in misinformation about the US election. Yes. Surely that is relevant information for the jury to know about this counterclaim. It's specifically about Adam Wardman. It's specifically about what he said and did in relation to this trial. I find it very hard to understand based on what I know about the rules of evidence, why that would not be relevant. He was kicked off the case, off Johnny Depp's case as well, because he leaked personal information about Amber Heard and he was banned from Twitter. So we have to think about the character that is Adam Waldman and what he was prepared to do on behalf of Johnny Depp. It bothers me. It bothers me too. And I feel that it really wasn't interrogated enough. And again, it's some of that key evidence that the jury didn't hear. I I can't remember exactly how long his deposition was, but it wasn't long. No, well, he didn't answer 75 questions, did he? Because he spoke to attorney-client privilege on that. So will we ever get to the bottom of it? I hope so. I hope so too, because he is a central character. And if Amber Heard's credibility is in question here, then his certainly is as well. 
And here's Johnny Depp on the witness stand being asked about the Daily Mail and Adam Waldman giving them the tape of Amber Heard and the exclusive interview re his claim that the domestic abuse allegations made by her were a hoax. Not long after this, you you met Mr. Waldman in the late summer or fall of 2016, correct? I believe, yeah, September, October, somewhere in there, whatever. And he's been your attorney since then, correct? Yes, sir. And you met with him with the Daily Mail in London in February 2020, didn't you? I'm sorry, again? You and Mr. Waldman together met with the Daily Mail in London in February 2020, didn't you? Um, are you asking me a question about my attorney and I? Yeah, that you two met with people from the Daily Mail in London in February 2020. Was that during the London trial? No. No? No. In February. I don't recall it, though. Okay. To the extent Mr. Waldman testified that you did, you you don't dispute that, correct? I I just don't, don't, don't recall it. Okay. You don't disagree with Mr. Waldman's testimony that you and he met with people from the Daily Mail in London in February 2020, correct? If that's Mr. Waldman's testimony, then... Okay. But I, I just didn't necessarily know who these people were. Right. The, the, I guess. the same month that the Daily Mail released alleged tapes between you and Amber. Objection Correct. calls for speculation. Alleged, Lack of personal knowledge. Alleged I'll, sustain, I'll sustain the objection. Next question. Johnny Depp doesn't answer the question. He ums and ahs, buying time, when it's a straightforward question. After more than a minute, he concedes that if that's what Mr. Waldman's testimony is, and he's nodding yes, but rather than saying yes, he says, I just don't know who these people were, as if he's confused. In my opinion, he's caught in a lie here, and Camille Vasquez quickly objects, and it's sustained by the judge, and it just sort of fizzles out. No big deal. But this is the heart of the Amber Heard counterclaim against Johnny Depp. And I have to say, Camille Vasquez is very good at objecting at critical moments, most of which were sustained by the judge. And then they move on. And in the blink of an eye, important details fizzle out and are most likely missed by the jury. Johnny Depp, however, was recalled to the stand and he was asked about it once more. This is what he says the second time around. When is the first time that you saw this statement by Mr. Waldman? Um, the first time that I uh, ever saw this statement uh, was in August. Um, it was when the piece was the 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 um, when she August twenty twenty when I was countersued by Miss Heard. This is the first time that I saw any of these uh, statements. Can we please pull up Defendant's, Defendant's Exhibit 1246? And this is also already in evidence. Right. Thank you. If we could scroll down to the second page or the third, perhaps. Thank you. Mr. Depp, do you see this statement that's attributed to Mr. Waldman here? I do. And when is the first time that you saw these statements? Uh, 
same uh, when the when the countersuit uh, was filed. And could we please go to Defense Exhibit twelve forty seven? And again, this is already in evidence. And if we could scroll down, please. Thank you, Mr. Depp. Do you see the statement attributed to Mr. Waldman? I do indeed. Yes. And when's the first time that you saw this statement? The, 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 this, this is the same. It's uh, the uh, uh, counterclaim to August 2020. After you saw these statements for the first time, did you form an understanding as to where they appeared? I didn't, uh, as to where they had appeared, the statements. In what, in what publication? So the clip finishes there, but the outlet was the Daily Mail. And Johnny Depp says the first time that he was aware of these statements was when he was being countersued. Well, just remember that according to Adam Wardman, Johnny Depp was at the meeting with the Daily Mail and therefore knew about it all along. So someone is not being truthful. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You know, and we should be able to ask questions about him and what he has done. And so much of that evidence about him, the jury didn't get to hear. And I think that's a real problem. And what he's done on behalf of Johnny Depp. Because again, it it goes back to him being his agent. And I, I think, you know, where I land of having watched the trial is that if you believe that Amber Heard's to be, is lying, then you have to believe that everybody else is lying too. And that's a position that I cannot wrap my head around, basically, because it would mean that Dr. Dawn Hughes, who spent 29 hours with her, that she's lying. And she is an expert on domestic abuse and coercive control. And Dr. Laurel Anderson, Bonnie Jacobs. You've also got makeup artists who I spoke about, Melanie Inglesis and Josh Drew, her friend. Christina Sexton, the acting coach, who said she would hear them fighting and Amber Heard had become a wreck and she talked about her crying in 18 to 90% of their sessions and that she lost a lot of weight due to the stress and wouldn't leave the house. Then there was Tracy Jacobs, Johnny Depp's agent of 30 years, who said Johnny Depp asked her to kill a 2018 film that Amber Heard was in because there were nudity scenes and he made threats to ruin them as they were nobodies, he said. And producer Bruce Whitkin, who talked about Johnny Depp's jealous streak and how he would work himself up when Amber Heard filmed with male co-stars. And Ellen Birkin, who talked about Johnny Depp's 
jealous and controlling behaviour, who, by the way, I've heard others now talk about her and say, oh, it's because she's bitter and twisted, because she wanted the relationship with Johnny. That's why she said it. Why is it that women are always couched in this, they can't be trusted, they're bitter and twisted, they're manipulative, they want something, you know, and it's payback, rather than actually what she's just describing is similar to Jennifer Grey, who also said that she, you know, dated him and was engaged to him for a short time, but he was jealous and controlling that perhaps we've got three women characterising Johnny Depp as jealous and controlling, and perhaps he was jealous and controlling. Exactly. <laughs> That's absolutely it. And I got that from a lot of people, this idea that that she was bitter because he didn't want to be with her long term. And I think... That's a stretch. It's really hard for me to see how that's the conclusion that people come to. And it makes you see that people really want to come to the conclusion that it couldn't be that these women were saying something about him that was true, which was that there was a pattern of behaviour about him trying to control people. And instead of that conclusion, we have these very far-fetched, and, and frankly, this idea has an undertone of misogyny, which is that that women can't let go of things that happened 30 years ago and that she's still hung up about the fact that Johnny Depp didn't want to be with her for longer than three months or whatever. You know, it's hard to imagine that accusation being levelled at, you know, a male witness. And that's really tricky. And as you said, there are so many people who would have had to have lied through their teeth for all of these domestic abuse allegations to be completely made up. I mean, there were 11 people who saw her with facial injuries. That means 11 people must have you know, made up those stories for her. And I guess that's what people say to me. They say, yeah, well, they made it up to protect her or, and no one's saying that about Johnny Depp's witnesses. So again, it's just this really fundamental idea about who people want to believe. Who they want to believe and who we're being forced to question, forced to question much more than the other. And I do think, you know, alcohol and drugs really does play a part. And if we all agree that Johnny Depp has or did have substance misuse, alcohol and drugs. And there were times where he was violent. We know that. He has an ongoing case where it's alleged that he hit a member of the crew on a movie that he was working on. And others have attested that he has been violent too. And he hasn't remembered. Not every time, but on a number of occasions, he may well not have remembered exactly what he did. But certainly things that are said in Hollywood about his behaviour on set, not turning up on time, being drunk, being belligerent, being violent, not memorising his lines, everything about what I would call entitlement, male entitlement and male privilege. Why would that not carry through in his personal relationships? Yes, this is something that really I struggle with as well, this compartmentalization that people have that is kind of specifically reserved for him, right? So I think a great example of this is what you just said about all of his behaviour that wasn't questioned, you know, and in fact that, you know, evidence that went unchallenged about how he behaved in certain situations. And then also the text messages, I think, are a good example, the way he talks about burning her and then defiling her burnt corpse and saying all these really horrific, unarguably misogynistic things about her. And I say to people, does that not matter to you? And they say, no, no, because, like, yes, he's the type of person who talks about women this way, but that's completely separate from how he treats actual live women. That is such a generous understanding of a person. The fact that it could be so separate, you know, that he could be willing to speak about women, you know, his own partner in that way, but doesn't disrespect people in any other part of his life, including that actual person when she's in the room. 
Yeah, I mean, it's absolute nonsense. And that's not what I've seen in real life and in real cases. My experience of casework, you know, thousands of cases. And I always say when I'm training police officers and so on, look at the statement. If that's what he's saying about the person he's meant to love and care about the most, what does he say about other women? So we have to join those things up. It's not just something that's reserved. And if it's reserved for the woman that he's meant to care for, love and trust the most, what does that say about him? You know, he characterised himself as the Southern gentleman. And this is one of the posts that I put out on social media. But he was also calling women sluts, C-U-N-Ts, even Vanessa Paradis, a withering C-U-N-T. And whether she then gives testimony later on saying otherwise, and sometimes we do see people do that. They protect that person for all sorts of reasons. And I've seen that with many victims too, that even when they're asked by a police officer did he do A, B, or C? And they've said no, even though he did, because they're trying to protect the abuser. That can happen. That doesn't mean to say he didn't do it. So I think people see things as, you called it being generous or fair, but misogyny is is something that can be internalized. It can be deep-seated, but if it's present, it will be present. It will leak out at different times. And Johnny Depp calling women the way that he has and the things that he said about Amber Heard... Well, that does connect to this case. It is important to understand his mindset and his psychology. Absolutely. And this idea that he should be given leeway to kind of think that that is completely separate from the rest of his life and personality is is really alarming, especially because, and I try and say this to people, you know, people say, which again, his lawyers did a great job of presenting this narrative. You know, maybe you wouldn't use that language. Maybe you wouldn't speak like that. But Johnny Depp does. But that doesn't mean he's an abuser. It just means he has dark humour. I mean, that's one thing. But almost exclusively, those text messages were gender-based and sexualized. They weren't just kind of standard swear words about Amber Heard. There was always some sort of sexual content. Uh, There was lots of innuendo. And that is telling. That is important. You know, even if you think, because also people say he was so angry. So he was, and that's what he said on the stand, I was angry. We all get angry. I don't use that language when I'm angry because it's hypersexualized and it's misogynistic. He does use that language when he's angry from what we saw almost exclusively. And that matters. You know, that tells you something about how he thinks, that that's the language he reaches for when he's emotive. But that wasn't really, you know, it seems that people completely discounted that. Yeah, the cum guzzler, all these things that I don't even want to repeat them, but there were many of them. I mean, he said to a CAA agent things that he wanted to, um, you know, get global humiliation of of Amber Heard and ensure that that happened, but also to Paul Bettany about drowning the witch and raping her body, her rotten body. So yes, the sexualized aspect to it, I agree. I mean, in, again, in thousands of cases that I've worked, it's that sexualized, offensive really reducing the reductionist aspect to it, but reducing her just to a sexualized object. That's what people overlook, that yes, you can be angry with somebody, but how you argue and the things that you say really does speak volumes about who you are at your core. And that, in my opinion, as a criminal behavioral analyst and the work that I do should not be disregarded and it shouldn't ever just be, well, that's just the way a person speaks. Exactly. And as you say, you know, I, this is such a big thing that I feel, again, they weren't challenged as much on this as I think perhaps they could have been, which is 
this idea that that was just humor and that was just you know the way he speaks because as you just said it, the way someone speaks is incredibly important it's evidence you know it tells you something about who they are and this was presented as kind of not relevant to who he was and that seems so artificial to me but it seemed to work it's certainly from the messages i get you know people yes. completely forgive him and again it goes back to what we were saying about who gets forgiven and how much people get forgiven for and the messages i get are i gave those messages absolutely no weight in my mind because it was explained away angry and it was explained away and i accepted that explanation and i forgive him and he's not perfect and that's why for me it doesn't make sense of the fact that he said on tape that he headbutted amber heard on the forehead you know in another text i'll smack the ugly c-u-n-t before i let her in don't worry you know, these things were spoken to in court, but yet the jury still found zero instances of domestic abuse by Johnny Depp towards Amber Heard. Even when the property damage video that she took of him when he's drinking a big glass of red wine, I think it was, and he's smashing all the cabinets. When you're in a property and somebody has a physicality advantage over you, i.e. their physiology and just the way that they behave can be threatening and intimidating. And I think people don't even understand that. Unless you've been in it, you don't know how scary it is when someone's using their body in that way and smashing things around. And when we know, when we think about domestic abuse, that the message is also you can punch the wall or smash cabinets and the message is you're next. And that's what I tend to see in escalation. So even those videos, people were dressing up as, oh, well, it's just cabinet abuse. It's got no relevance. And it's amazing the mental gymnastics that people go through to excuse and explain away his behavior, but yet do not let her off the hook, not on one thing. And the jury clearly did not believe anything she said. And I think maybe it is to the point where if you disbelieve her on one point, Therefore, you must disregard everything she has to say. And I just wonder whether that may have been a direction that was given, or maybe that was something that they just feel that if she's disingenuous and she's lied on one point, therefore she has no credibility. And of course, this case was all about credibility. And unfortunately, it was about likability. There is a court of public opinion here, and it has voted, hasn't it? Absolutely. And again, I feel like this is a case in which we really have to let go of that idea that these two things don't relate to each other. You know, this idea of the court of public opinion and how the jury decided in this case, you know, there's, these two things are spilling over into one another more and more and more. And this, I think this, this did come down to that. It really came down to likability and credibility because I don't believe, you know, I think that video is such a good example. If you look at domestic abuse legislation, what's criminalised is, as we said, this idea of a pattern power and control and also that threats of violence are treated the same under domestic abuse legislation as violence itself and in that video he's not only smashing glass breaking cabinets he says you want to see crazy i'll give you crazy that sounds like a direct threat to me it's not even doesn't even have to be implied that he's threatening to escalate he says it i find it hard to imagine that a kind of anonymous person who is not johnny depp being forgiven for that video in the way that he has been so completely. I agree. And, you know, when we put the context in that his best friends with Marilyn Manson, and of course there's an upcoming case with Evan Rachel Wood that Manson's now going down the defamation route. 
I mean, I certainly know in my cases now, a number of women that I know in my circle have now been notified of defamation cases. And we are going to see this impact. And it's happening now in real time. So when people say, well, no, the impact is positive, that more male victims will come forward. Actually, what we're seeing on the ground is that women are being notified of defamation cases. So we know defamation suits can be a very effective tool for silencing people, for suppressing people's voice. And I don't think we're going to understand the full repercussions of this trial for a while, but I'm certainly seeing it already now. And it does really concern me that people can disregard clear testimony and clear evidence of abuse. And I was hoping that the jury, given, I think, the sum up on Amber Heard's, the closing argument on Amber Heard's side was actually quite strong of it's just one one event, one instance, and therefore you would find in favour of Amber Heard. And I felt that they had shown more than one. They'd shown evidence, testimony, um, photos, and there was clear evidence there from multiple people, not just from Amber Heard. So I think if they would followed the letter of the law then actually they most likely would have found in favour of Amber Heard. And I can't help but feel that emotion and the fact that Johnny Depp's team did such a good job. I mean, I have to applaud them as a team of lawyers because they really did do a fantastic job. They highlighted every inconsistency so well. And the Darvo aspect of it, the deny, attack, the victim's credibility, the demonising of Amber Heard online and in the courtroom worked incredibly well. And unfortunately, she didn't do herself any favours and they reversed the victim and offender role. And that's what people are left with. And I saw it unfolding before my very eyes. And I find that incredibly difficult because it's like a, a gaslighting. But there are those who are saying that, no, this is great for male victims. More male victims will speak up. But there were instances that were testified to that over time, I think, stand the test of time and are credible, whether you like Amber Heard or not. And unfortunately, I think a lot of it came down to likability and and those inconsistencies being really magnified. I completely agree. And I think this argument about male victims is really difficult because that's not actually going to be the legal outcome of this case. If you think about it, you know, I completely agree with you. Looking at the evidence, looking at the hard evidence, the documentary evidence, the amount of first-hand witnesses. I mean, one thing, people find it really important that certain people didn't see facial injuries, for example. That's very different to evidence that people did see facial injuries because one, one thing is trying to prove a negative. There are lots of reasons why someone might not see something. Things like that, you know, she, the fact that she had so many people who saw these injuries, the fact that, you know, she told therapists about it, all of this really hard evidence, that is going to be the legacy of this case. It's not that male victims will now be treated better by courts. That's not going to be the precedent. The precedent is how much hard evidence you need in order to prove in court that you're abused. And this has raised that bar. And I have gotten hundreds of messages from people who say, I was abused over many, many years and I don't have as much evidence as she has. And she's still lost. You know, so that's, regardless of gender, this verdict makes it harder for all victims of abuse. This verdict is not going to benefit male victims because it's about all victims and it has raised the bar for what you need to come to court with if you are going to say that you're a victim of abuse. That's the practical legacy and that's why, you know, we've both heard from people 
from survivors of abuse who are terrified because, you know, they're being threatened with defamation lawsuits and because they don't have the proof that she has. Even with all the witnesses that she had, it still wasn't enough for a jury. And so people who are now being threatened with defamation suits are, are terrified about what that means for them. And so I think I think that's what's tricky about firstly, I completely agree with you. I interviewed many male victims of abuse in my work. I don't see there is evidence that he is one of them. You know, so that's the difference. It's not that I don't think it, they exist and it's a huge problem. I, I just haven't seen any evidence that he falls into that category. And and that's why I don't think that argument that this is helpful for that group of people is very persuasive, especially because we've now seen many male victims of abuse come out and say, please stop saying this about me. This is not true. You don't speak for me. And I don't think this is good for male victims of abuse at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. The burden of proof is definitely now increased. And when I think about coercive control and so much of it is non-physical, and yes, there may be physical too, but you would almost have to have video footage of the assault itself, if that's what we're saying, if we're holding that same standard that people are holding Amber Heard to, if it, if we can't physically see it and if we didn't witness it, ergo it didn't happen. It's everything I've been fighting against in the criminal justice system, the family justice system, etc., for people to understand most abuse is not physical. And I believe, you know, we are in a very difficult time now. And I think that misogyny online is also the thing that concerns me, that it's so visible. You know, I've worked cases where men have killed their children and their partner, and they don't receive this level of vitriol and hatred. And I can't square that of how she receives this level of hatred and vitriol from men and women, and yet murderers, rapists, and serial killers don't receive any of this. In fact, people are wearing their faces on T-shirts, you know, and celebrating them, and bothers me even more. Exactly. I mean, we have Louis C.K., who has admitted to abusing his power. He was just given a Grammy. You know, he's not being treated the way that she is. You know, there are so many examples of that disconnect. You know, I truly have never seen anything like the way she is being vilified. Absolutely. It's disgusting. I mean, it, it really is. Even if she had lied, well, we see lots of men and serial killers and perpetrators lie in exactly, you know, the same way, even worse. And yet they're not treated in, in the same vein. So it is concerning. And I think, you know, there's more on this to come, but I, I don't think the Me Too movement is dead. I just think that people now have to really rally, you know, and spotlight these problems within our criminal justice system and with our civil justice system and family justice system too. And actually our voices, even though mine has been very croaky today, but our voices need to get louder. So I'm I'm really... I'm really pleased to have had this conversation with you. And I wonder, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you wanted to cover? If there was anything else within the trial that we missed and haven't mentioned? I don't think so. I mean, I feel like this was really great in that we got to talk about lots of, you know, all of the really important elements, which I certainly haven't felt like I've been able to do, you know, really kind of cover off um, all the really important things. So, so no, I, I don't think there's anything we missed. I just would love to reiterate what you said, which I think, you know, I think we're at, at a juncture here. And I think particularly as people who are focused on the justice system and who are focused on the law, I think now is a time when it's really important for us to kind of make sure people understand what these issues with the legal system are and that 
perhaps not as straightforward as, as people think and that the law can be misused in certain ways and that there are imbalances of power and, you know, this idea of bringing essentially the same case in different forms. You know, there are lots of legally nerdy questions that are hugely important when we're talking about abuse of power and moving into this next phase where we might see defamation suits be used, you know, more and more frequently for this reason. And so I think think that's really important. I mean, you know, sometimes people switch off when people talk about the legal details, but I do feel like we're at a point where we need to kind of keep trying to communicate those issues to people to, to, yeah. to, so that people understand how important it is to how this plays out. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I've certainly never seen that before. The, there's a UK judgment on the case and it rules in one way. And then a couple of years later, the case is brought under a slightly different umbrella, but in a different state and setting. And then it's found against that ruling. Um, that's an anomaly to me. And I, if you have money and if you have power and if you have influence and you're able to do that, right? And we are talking about power imbalances, particularly when we talk about gender violence. You know, there's a clue in the title, really, because there is a power imbalance there. So what happens if a case, you don't get the right answer, then you keep taking it to different places and you keep taking, give it another shot because you don't get the right answer. Exactly. And that is something that we really need to think about, I think, as lawyers and as people who care about the justice system is, particularly if these defamation suits begin to proliferate, as you and I have both seen, you know, from victims who have been threatened with this in the last few days, we need to make sure there's a system in place to make sure this isn't being abused, you know, in terms of people forum shopping and trying to find the the most friendly defamation laws in order to get the outcome that they want. The justice system shouldn't be used in that way, especially when we're thinking about, as you say, abuse of power and and when, um, you know, the person with more money is able to bring more and more lawsuits and, you know, that could end up being a real problem. And I think, you know, those of us who think about the law and the justice system, that's something it's important to remain focused on. Yes, because all that happens is privilege and male entitlement and patriarchy wins and will keep winning if we don't challenge it. So I definitely want to bring you back, Lucia, and talk about Ghislaine Maxwell, because that's the case that I do really want to get into. And you were in court and know firsthand what was going on. So I want to thank you for your time. I've kept you on for far longer than I anticipated because I've enjoyed chatting with you. So thank you so much. No, this has been really great. So thank you for having me on. And I look forward to next time. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm jumping back in here, lovely listeners, to wrap this episode I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation. And it seems that although we have a verdict, and the verdict was clear, well, it was clear for some, this is not the end. On the 8th of June, Johnny Depp's lawyer suggested that he might waive the $8.35 million that Amber Heard owes if she agrees not to appeal. They have until the 24th of June to come to a settlement agreement, So it's not over just yet. Stay tuned. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me 
and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.